I invite you to hear this word as a way to draw our hearts together uh, in the worship of our God. This is from Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot shall shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we hear these words about you that were written so long ago. And we're reminded that you are just and you are righteous. And as we look at your word today, as we study what it means to be people who are formed by your character, we're reminded that righteousness is a gift. And we're reminded that this time together is a gift. So would you bless this time in worship? Would you allow us to share our voices together, to hear your voice? We lift up this time to you, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to worship together. you to remain standing as we hear from God's word. This word comes to us from Matthew's gospel. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thanks, Allie. Thanks, Bill. It's great to see all of you in worship. I want to invite you one more time just to join me in prayer as we come before the word. Jesus, these are your words. You spoke them, and we want to receive your full meaning. And so may the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome to all of you. I met a whole bunch of you that are new, so I'm so glad that you're here. It's great to be able to worship together. This uh, Sunday, we're continuing our series uh, called Can You See It? Building a Common Vision of the Kingdom of God. And so just to catch up, just to kind of give everybody sort of a baseline to figure out where we're at, uh, we have said throughout this series that the Beatitudes, these statements from Jesus that we read through just a moment ago, are statements of what life in God's kingdom is supposed to be like. Like this is how life was meant to be. And we've said also that God's kingdom is the range of his effective will, where what God wants done is done. And that looks different than a lot of other places in our world. And so today we turn our attention to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Familiar words, if you grew up around church, you've probably heard a whole bunch of sermons on this. And I want to start our time together by doing something a little bit different. Um, Normally, one of the tasks of our teaching time is that we have a definition of some kind 
for one of the keywords, right? Like, let's talk about what this word means. So I usually um, build that in a little bit later in the message. Today I'm just going to walk out one of our definitions right away, so hopefully that'll be helpful. And then I'll also do something that I normally save for the end. I'm going to talk about how this text has really impacted my life this week. It's one thing to get up here and talk about it in terms of biblical studies and theology and all these other important things, but one of the challenges that's continually before us as students of the Word is how does the Word keep hitting us and keep changing us, because it's gonna. So let's start with the definition. The definition I want to offer is about righteousness, and I'll say this, and it's going to sound really legal and kind of like squeaky and clean, but it gets really messy really quickly. Righteousness, according to one of the commentaries I read this week, is conduct in accordance with the requirements of a particular relationship. Sounds like something your lawyer would say to you. Conduct in accordance with the requirements of a particular relationship. So to relate that to our time, you and I enjoy righteousness, a form of righteousness, when the relationships that we're in, we live up to those commitments, that we honor the people that we're in relationship with. So if you're married, you have a significant commitment to your spouse. You have a significant commitment to honoring that person, to making sure that they are loved, that you seek God's best for them, that you keep your promises to them. If you're not married, you also have a network of commitments with your friendships, with your extended family, with your roommates. Imagine not honoring your roommates. That goes away pretty quickly, doesn't it? Imagine living in relationships where there's no trust, there's no rapport, there's no forgiveness, there's no grace. That's the absence of righteousness in this definition. Conduct in accordance with the requirements of a particular relationship. The moment that we're in as a nation, as a country, I think also demands something of us in terms of our relationship. Now don't worry, if you've been at Bethany Eastside any amount of time, you know that I'm not going to get up here and pontificate and create an editorial in the newspaper. That's not what I'm here for, it's not what you're here for. But we are going to speak to how the text addresses our moment as a nation. If you're a Christian, you exist as a person who is in relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the defining relationship of your life. And that requires something of you. Actually, that should require everything of you. If you follow Jesus Christ, you're also called to be in relationship with a church. You're called to be a part of the body of Christ. At our church, Bethany Community Church, we exist in relationship with one another. We exist in relationship with the other Bethany churches around the Seattle area. And we exist in relationship with several important mission partnerships. And some of you may know about this, but we've been partnering with an organization called World Relief Seattle for a number of years. Some of you are here because of the work that we've been privileged to do with World Relief. World Relief's mission, if you're not familiar with them, is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And this mission drives World Relief and thus drives churches like ours to pray for and to support ministries that focus on a group of people that have just come up in our news cycle in a very high-profile way. And those people are immigrants and refugees. World Relief works to serve people who are in those places in life in the way of Jesus Christ. And that's a relationship that we as a church have engaged in for quite a while now. And maybe that's news to you, and maybe it's not. But we agree that by being a part of any church, there are things that we are called to support. And Bethany, as a church, has said for a long time, we care about the plight of immigrants and refugees, and we're going to do something about this through world relief, because that's how we see living out the gospel. And to be a part of this church, you do not have to agree with that. You do not have to subscribe to that. Okay? That is not a requirement of membership at Bethany Community Church, but it is something that we're a part of. 
If you've been at East Side any amount of time, I'll highlight one more relationship that we have. You know that part of the way that we finish up our time in worship together is we pray for our community and for our world. And so since I've been here, we've devoted our time at the end of our worship to praying for the countries around our world that are torn apart by war. We pray for our own community. We pray for schools. We pray for leaders. So if you've been around here, you know we have a relationship of prayer for Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran and Syria. And we haven't just prayed for those countries. We've prayed for leaders in those countries. We've prayed for cities that have been under fire. And so we have prayed, we have formed a relationship with countries that are now in our news cycle in some pretty dire ways. So here's how the text hits me right now. Righteousness, which is conduct in accordance with the, re- with the requirements of a particular relationship, means that I and those of us who call this church home are called to lean into these relationships that I've just talked about. So we will pray as a church. We will lean into relationships like the one that we have with World Relief Seattle. And because this conversation around immigrants and refugees becomes so partisan and so fraught with energy, we will endeavor to speak to one another with civility and with grace that is befitting a group of people that take the gospel seriously. We're going to try to do that not just here in our own community, but we're going to try to bring that into our workplaces and into our schools and into our homes. God's people in this moment are called to proclaim the kingdom, called to proclaim the gospel through the relationship that we have, which isn't always thing. That hasn't changed. But especially in light of this moment, in light of the protests, in light of all that's going on, it'd be foolhardy for us to talk about righteousness and not consider the moment that we're in. So I'm hoping that throughout our time together today that we can kind of come back to that, to the relationships that lead us into the pursuit of righteousness, including in this arena with immigrants and refugees. So the text, I think, is going to help us really understand that. And that's how the text has really impacted my life this week, is raising up this issue and connecting it to something the Bible really takes seriously. So I offer that as an introduction. I offer, offer that as an opportunity if you want to have a continued conversation about what is world relief and why do we do what we do with them. And I don't know about that. That's why I'm here. I'd love to have a conversation with you around that. Let's talk through the text, though. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. In verse 6, and it starts with our appetites and our power. So we're going to go through it this way. We're going to go through each part of this verse. And at the beginning of the verse, I'm going to give us a thesis statement, kind of something to hang our hats on, and then we'll talk about that. So there'll be one for each of these sections. The thesis statements for this first section, this is outlined in your bulletin, goes like this. We can hunger and thirst for a kingdom, but without Christ, our kingdoms have no real power. We can hunger and thirst for a kingdom, but without Christ, our kingdoms have no real power. So Jesus was and is a real person with real physical qualities. He could be touched, he experienced emotions, and he was hungry and thirsty. We see this all throughout his life. So when the text says, Jesus is saying, hunger and thirst for righteousness, when he uses those words, he's using it in such a wonderful way, which he did because he was a masterful teacher. He connected it to real life. And he wasn't just saying it metaphorically. He wasn't saying it like, well, you know, you regular people, you get hungry and thirsty. So let me see if I can talk to you this way. He's saying this as someone that actually experienced hunger and thirst. And especially hungering and thirsting for righteousness. One of the metaphors that Jesus used to talk about real life, life in the kingdom, was bread. And we talked about this during our Advent series. But in John chapter 6, Jesus has this back and forth conversation with a group of people about bread. 
The people come to him and say, Rabbi, give us a miracle. Give us something tangible. Give us something physical so we can say that you're real, that what you're about is the real deal. Instead of giving them just a flat answer, like, okay, here you go, here's the bread, Jesus pulls them into this three-dimensional reality where they have to confront something that they probably weren't expecting. And the question is this, what do our hearts really long for? What are we actually hungry for? The people in John 6 think that they want Jesus to provide some food for them, give them something to eat. But instead, in one of his great I am statements, and we're going to study the I am statements as we get ready for Easter in a little while, Jesus says this, and this is John 6:35. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What's he talking about? He's talking about hungering and thirsting for the things that are actually going to bring peace that are actually going to satiate our souls. And we'll talk about that in one of our our last headings when we talk about eternal fulfillment. The people who are asking him these questions don't understand yet that when Jesus arrived on the scene, he wasn't just a new kind of bread. He didn't walk into this crowd and say, I'm manna 2.0. You need to eat this thing because the other thing didn't work. No, he says to them something completely different. He says, those who ate the manna, those who just ate bread still died. They still perished. They still missed the target. They still hungered and thirsted for the things that ultimately would not satisfy. And friends, that's the reality of your life and my life when we hunger after things absent the power of Christ. When we try to make our lives about something, even good things, even justice, even righteousness, even the pursuit of things that we know God loves, when we do it on our own effort, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're in trouble. Because our power, our little kingdoms, the range of our effective will, is so limited. And as we learned about in the first couple of weeks of this series, your kingdom and my kingdom is meant to lock into and be a part of God's big kingdom. And the two should not live separately. We can hunger and thirst for a kingdom, a place where our will is done, our effective will is done, but without Christ, our kingdoms have no real power. Most of us count ourselves as powerful when we get something done, when we get something that we want, when we achieve a goal. That's a good expression of power. But if you're counting on fulfilling your appetites, if just meeting your own needs is the way that you feel like you can bring yourself power, let me ask you this. Are you looking for bread, for empty carbs, or are you looking for the bread of life? Are you looking for the one who's actually going to sustain you? Let me frame this negatively for us, because I kind of had a hard time grasping this when I was writing it, which is always a challenge whenever you're writing a sermon. If you're struggling to connect to this, here's a way to frame it. Where do you feel powerless right now? Where do you feel like you got no power to influence anything? When are we actually powerless? I've been listening to a recording of the Broadway musical Hamilton. How many of you guys have listened to this? It's really fun. It's really well done. And one of the songs is about how the main character, Alexander Hamilton, wants to be in the room. He wants to be in the room where the big decisions are made for the future of America. And he laments not being allowed in the room. He doesn't have the power. He feels cut off. He feels powerless. He hates it. When are you and I kept out of the room? When we don't get to be there when the big kid decisions are made. When are you most painfully reminded of the fact that you are a vice president, not the president? Maybe you feel powerless 
when this rhetoric that we've been living under in our country for a while now just feels so antagonistic, so stressful, so contrary to your own beliefs. Maybe that's where you're at, and you're going, I don't have the power to change any of this. This is miserable. On the flip side of that, when you watch the news, maybe you feel powerless to understand why people would march through the streets of their cities, why they would rise up and protest. Maybe that's a form of powerlessness going, I don't get this. I don't understand. Let me make a suggestion. When we feel powerless, you and I, those are precisely the moments to offer back to God our appetites, what we're hungering for in that moment. When I was a junior in high school, I wanted three things. I wanted more than that, but I wanted three main things. I wanted to get my letter jacket, I wanted to make good grades and go to college, and I wanted to have successful relationships with my friends. Those are my three things. I was a strategic little 17-year-old. What I could have done, but I didn't do, is in those moments say to God, okay, God, I have this ambition. I have this hunger. I have this appetite. Would you take that and do your good through my ambition? Would you take that and align my hunger with your desires? Maybe that's a prayer for all of us right now. God, make the good that you want be what I want. That is one of the things God can gift to his people when we ask. So maybe that's what you need to do today, is to ask for God to refine and reform your hungers and your appetites. Okay, so that's our first heading. Now we're going to talk about what it means to dwell in love. This is where righteousness kind of takes on flesh. And our big idea for this section is kind of a more focused definition of righteousness than the one we first talked about. The one that is more focused, and I would argue more personal, goes like this. Righteousness is the way that God shapes our character when we dwell in his love. It is the way God shapes our character when we dwell in his love. In the original language of the text, righteousness was kind of a big ticket thing. It referred to qualities like being just, being upright, being fair, and dealing with others, being approved by God. It covered a lot of ground. Now, Jesus' teaching on righteousness didn't actually focus on doing stuff. It didn't focus on your behavior. It focused on character. Life lived under God's rule and reign changes our character. Earlier in our service, we heard a statement from Isaiah who predicted the coming of Messiah, the coming of Christ, and the passage that we heard actually helps reinforce this idea that righteousness is the heart of Jesus' kingdom. Listen to this. I'll just read part of it. This is Isaiah chapter 11. If you want to follow along, I'll start reading in verse 3. The Messiah, his delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. Here's the takeaway from that passage. Three different parts. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. It is where people live in relationship to the king, and that saturates them in his love. And then out of that love, they live in such a way that it aligns with the desires of the king. It is so important to keep this in mind because the danger in preaching through the Beatitudes, the danger in studying the Beatitudes, is that we so easily fall into, how do I change my behavior? How do I clean up my act? Act like this, don't do this, you'll get into the kingdom. No. 
We have said from week one, the kingdom is not about cleaning up your act. It is about being transformed. And the vehicle for our change is the way that the Holy Spirit works and transforms our character. That was kind of cool. Okay, everybody in here been to a wedding, right? We've all been to weddings. Most popular passage that's read at weddings, can anybody guess? 1 Corinthians 13, how does it go? Love is patient, love is kind. Anybody who's been married a long time is like, oh shoot, I haven't done that. Let me read it for you. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Dallas Willard has been one of our conversation partners throughout this study, and he helped me see this in kind of a new light this week. He describes God's kingdom as a place of righteous living where people don't simply act a certain way, but they draw their power from a different source. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. We draw our power from a different source. Last week, when we talked about the meek, the ones that will inherit the earth, we said that one of the ways to define the meek is the meek are those who draw their power from humility. And so those who live in God's kingdom draw their power, their ability to live and to do things for the sake of Christ from a different source. And so under this idea from Willard, All the virtues described in the Beatitudes, all the stuff that Jesus said to be about, all the stuff that's impossible to live up to in 1 Corinthians 13, all of those things are the result of catching the virus of love. That's what Dallas Willard calls it. He says this, as we catch God's love for us, then we find that these godly actions and behaviors are the result of dwelling in love. What are you doing to dwell in God's love? Now, I know we just talked about how it's not about doing, it's not about activity, but there is a part that we are supposed to play. So what are the things that are part of your life now that allow you to dwell and saturate yourself in the love of God? It means that when you're passionate about justice, when you're passionate about pursuing things like setting the world right, you're not just drawing that from your own altruistic spirit. It means you're drawing it from the power of God. If you want to hunger and thirst for what God wants, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, it starts with dwelling in God's love. So live in it. Soak it up. Don't just go, I need to clean up my act. Put yourself in community. Be here for worship. If you haven't linked up with a small group yet, I would strongly encourage you to do so. We have groups that are going to be starting up soon. I'd love for you to be a part of that. And if you find yourself dwelling again and again in God's love, your life is going to change and you're not going to control it. It's going to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit, through that transformation that we all need. Dwell in the Word. Just listen to the Word. Engage with the Bible. Practice your spiritual disciplines, prayer and silence and fasting and serving others. Out of that, our appetites will change. And I'll say this again at the end, but the goal of righteousness is not to stomp out your appetites. The goal of righteousness is to align our appetites with what God desires. So we can hunger and thirst for a kingdom, but without Christ, our kingdoms have no real power. We're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is God's brand of character formation. And we do this by dwelling in his love, by dwelling in community and in the word. So now let's turn to our final heading where we talk about ultimate satisfaction. And our thesis for this section goes like this. The kingdom of God 
is not about unshakable accomplishments in the present, but ultimate satisfaction as the kingdom breaks forth as God's will is done into the future. The kingdom of God is not about unshakable accomplishment in the present, but about ultimate satisfaction as the kingdom breaks forth as God's will is done. When Jesus uses uh, the verb for they will be filled, that phrase is actually one word, and it's a Hebrew or a Greek word called chorazo. Sounds like chorizo, which makes me hungry for breakfast. It comes up a couple of different times in his ministry, usually in connection to food. So back to the bread thing again, and I'm sorry if you're trying to cut carbs. The Gospels all record the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus transformed a little boy's lunch into a feast. And at the end of those stories, the word chorazo is used. They all ate and were satisfied. In a very painful moment in the story of the prodigal son, the younger son, who goes and blows all of his money, blows his inheritance on wild living, he gets so broke down, lives in such squalor and such abject poverty that the text tells us that he literally lived with pigs and longed to be satisfied by what the pigs were eating. Finally, the Apostle Paul uses the word in a very powerful way in his letter to the church at Philippi. And this may be a verse that many of you know well. This is from Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me. And I'll read verses 12 and 13. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have chorazo, plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having chorazo, and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, here's why I'm mentioning all those different examples. They help paint, I think, a more accurate picture of what this phrase, they will be filled, is all about. They are the people whose character has been formed by dwelling in God's love, by being the kind of people who want to be like the one truly good, truly righteous person, Jesus Christ. They live in God's kingdom but have no concern for glory. They don't make it about themselves. They don't desire vain things. And it's not because their behavior is so pious. It's because their hearts have been changed by dwelling in God's love. The phrase will be is a great reminder that chorazo isn't just about being satisfied now. It's about stuff that's going to happen way, way, way in the future, long after this is all over with. Jesus wins the war. And every day we are in the midst of these battles. We are in the midst of these skirmishes between the failing, dying kingdom of this world and the rising up kingdom of God. And so the restoration and renewal of the whole world is what we hope for. So when we are in the middle of our daily lives, when we are fighting tooth and nail as educators for every kid to have the chance to go to college or to succeed in whatever form it takes, when we are parents and when we are so sick of our kids talking back to us or whatever, but we know that the end, the goal, is that their character would be formed. When we partner with organizations like World Relief, we're not just talking about solving momentary little problems, those are part of it, but we pin our hopes on the kingdom coming, on things being made right, ultimately right. Until the kingdom arrives fully, people who follow Jesus are supposed to live in such a way that doesn't pin our hopes totally on victories and successes right now. Setbacks are okay right now because the ultimate victor, the one who won everything, his reign will make everything right. And finally, the word filled. We're not longing for anything else. It means that those who have toiled for justice, for a world where kids aren't hungry, where people aren't sick, where the creation is well cared for, those hearts that have yearned for that have finally had it consummated. They have seen it come together. And it is a powerful thing. 
I want to share a video for just a moment. It's an example of someone in our church who is trying to live this out. This is Mike, and I believe he attends Bethany Ballard. It's Mike he, McCarter, he's a, and I work in the technology industry. And So he's, like he said, he works in tech. <laughs> so I thought that would relate well to us. Uh, listen to his story. He and his wife have developed a passion for justice, but the form of it is really interesting. And keep your ears peeled for those hints that they want to win these battles, but they trust who has won the war. Let's listen to this video now. My name is Mike McCarter, and I work in the technology industry. And about four years ago, I felt called to join the fight to defend vulnerable populations, starting with children and victims of sex trafficking. The real shift was when I moved from just learning about and in some cases turning away from some of the injustices I was hearing about to actually acknowledging that some of the greatest injustices in history are happening right now. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. Currently, there are estimates that 20 million people are enslaved. It's not just something that occurs in faraway places. It actually occurs right here in Seattle. Seattle is the third largest port in the U.S. for human trafficking. As a project manager in the technology industry, I recognize there are a lot of untapped technologies that could be used to help in this problem space. So I started with um, a friend of mine um, on a project called PhotoDNA Cloud Service. PhotoDNA Cloud Service is focused on eradicating child exploitation imagery from the internet. From there we moved to a technology that helps find missing children and we did that in partnership with a nonprofit called Thorn. Most recently we've been working on a project that fights sex trafficking by educating victims and showing support to them and by deterring and educating buyers of these victims. So did you hear what Mike is longing for? He's longing for the kingdom. He's longing for everything to be made right. And he's taking these steps. He's working on one thing, and then a new thing comes up, and a new thing comes up, because he, know who is, he knows who has won the war. And he's doing his part to pursue righteousness and to really and truly fight evil. Now, before we all start feeling really, really bad that we haven't designed software to fight sex trafficking, remember that this is a journey that God is in charge of, that he has taken Mike and his family on, so that they can see what their role is. And that's part of the question that we'll end with today, is what's your role? What is your part to play? Toiling for justice is a long-term commitment. It is not about getting everything gratified right now. It is about the end goal of seeing things like sex trafficking come to an end. And part of that story involves Mike, but part of it involves a whole bunch of other groups out there. And whatever we want to pursue the appetites that God has given to us are going to play a role in that. But Jesus loves us too much just to let our appetites sit where they are. So I want to close with this last word. This comes from a book uh, by Daryl Johnson, who's a, a professor at Regent College called The Beatitudes. And I'll invite uh, Bill and Allie to join me up here. And I'll offer this, and then I'll guide us uh, through a time where we can reflect and listen to just a few questions about what God has called us to in the pursuit of righteousness. 
The hunger and thirst for righteousness does not displace the hunger and thirst for food or drink. How could it, given that we are physical creatures who need physical sustenance? However, the hunger and thirst for righteousness does heal the hunger and thirst for food and drink by delivering it from compulsiveness. The hunger and thirst for righteousness does not negate the hunger and thirst for sexual intimacy, but it heals that deep hunger and thirst by delivering us from obsession. The hunger and thirst for righteousness does not kill the hunger and thirst for greatness, but it delivers it from ego centrality and thus heals it. Jesus comes and reforms our appetites. All of us have appetites that need to be reformed. It's right, we need to recognize today that Jesus Christ is the one who actually fulfills and brings to consummation all the appetites that are noble and good in his sight. So I want to invite you uh, to pray with me. I want to invite you to put down your notes, put down your Bible, and just reflect on these questions. And we'll finish our time together in a mode of reflection. Hear these words as we consider together what Jesus is calling us to respond to. Father, we thank you for the witness of your servant, Mike. We thank you for connecting us as a church to these really important stories. And now we ask that our own stories, the roles that you've called each of us to play in the building of your kingdom, that you would peel back some of our layers, that you would peel back some of our assumptions, that you would reform our hungers and our appetites so that we can better hear and respond to your calling. So God, hear us in these moments as we consider these questions, which we pray honor you. Jesus, for what do I hunger? Lord, how can I better surrender my hunger to you? of my life that aren't places where I dwell in your love. And there's got to be a way to better saturate myself and my family and my community in your love. So would you help me to see that path? How can I better dwell in your love today? Jesus, we thank you for your word. Pray that all of the words that we have heard and that we have spoken in these moments will be pleasing to you. And yet, your servant recognizes that there's always something that comes that isn't of you or that needs to be quickly forgotten. Would you, by your Holy Spirit's teaching ministry, allow that to happen and allow that which is of you that is worthy of you to be lifted up and embedded in our hearts for your purposes, for your glory trust you and we love you. We ask these things in the most holy and wonderful name, Jesus.
invite you to stand as we continue in our worship together. Prayer as we prepare to go forth. Jesus, you are our cornerstone. However we may feel about all the situations that face our country and face our world, you are the very corner. Everything that is held together is held together by you. And that includes us. That includes our church. That includes this world that you have entrusted to us to steward well. And so we thank you for the witness today of friends like Mike that are working to bring a day when there will be no more things like trafficking, no more things like abuse and exploitation. And so we pray for that day. We pray for him and his family as they work toward that goal. We pray for those, uh, even in this room, that can use their gifts and technology and other fields to work toward that end. May it come. May it come through your servants who want no glory for themselves and who simply want to see your kingdom rise. We pray for our nation. We pray for this time where there is anger, there is fear, where there is distancing. We pray for families who are kind of just stuck in limbo right now with families that can't come to our country and family that's stuck. Lord, over all these difficult situations, we pray for your resolution. We pray for your peace and your grace. We pray for our partners at World Relief. We thank you for how they pull your church into the field so that we can care for those who are the most vulnerable. And so would you continue to shape them and refine them and give them laser focus on their mission so that we too can be a part of what you are doing. We lift up those nations to you that we mentioned a moment ago, Iraq and Iran and Syria and Afghanistan. We lift up other nations like Yemen and Gambia and other countries where there has been such turmoil. And our hope is that the turmoil now would cease and the turmoil forever would cease. And would you bring that about, Lord, through leaders, through other nations, through peaceful means. We thank you that there are men and women who serve our country around the world and the armed forces and that they are building your peace. We pray for that. We pray that each of them would use their skills today to help bring your peace around the world as much as possible in as many ways as we can. Thank you for their service to us and to the world. Lord, we go forth from this place to serve you. Maybe we're going forth stirred up with some new ideas about how to serve you. Maybe we're inspired. Maybe we're feeling like there's just so much. How could we even start? And we thank you, Father, that you have given us one another to encourage each other toward first steps, toward next steps, that you've given us community so that we can be refined and so that we can step into what you desire for each of us at our workplaces, in our families, at schools, and hospitals, and all the places we serve. Father, we lift up the week ahead to you. We pray that your words about righteousness and about your desires would echo in our hearts. And may we respond in faithfulness and in gratitude. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, the babies are telling us it's time to go. <laughs> Love having you guys in service. So great to have little ones here. Would you go forth with this blessing? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and communion of his Holy Spirit be with you all, now and always. Now go in peace and serve the Lord. God's people agreed and said together. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>